The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. And welcome to the Doctor Who pod, proudly brought to you by SJP World Media. I am Sai, and joining me as always is my partner in time, Mr. Dan Griffin. How are you, my friend? Testing, testing, take three on this fucking intro. I'm doing well, mate. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm okay, mate. I'm okay. Internet troubles again. Technology sucks, but without it, we can't do this, can we? No, I think it's just I think it's just Sunday afternoon, isn't it? When we record, everybody's in their houses, hogging all the bandwidth, or however it's it's measured. I don't fucking know. I'm too old. Yeah, I don't fully understand it either. But <laughs> we will we will battle through. We will do our best. Um, if anyone hears any issues as we record, or if there's any delays, we apologise in advance. But I think we're okay to go, my friend. Let's let's do it like you said, best we can. Yes, I think we have got a bit of a delay there, but it'll, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Sometimes it catches up after a while, so we'll be okay. Look, today we are looking at the John Pertwee four-parter from February, well, January and February of 1973, entitled The Carnival of Monsters. Now, this is a story I've seen a couple of times, but just sort of had it on in the background and so on. But when I rewatched it for the show, it, it really struck me how... This is just real prime 1970s sci-fi silliness. And I was all here for that. I, 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 I loved how 70s and daft this was. What were your first thoughts on this, Dan? And have you seen it before watching it for the show? Uh, no, I've never seen it before. This was my first look at it. Look at it and I've got to be honest, the first thing that hit me is right from the off when there's an obviously alien planet and we've got a grey alien with Mean Gene Oakland's hairline. Yes. <laughs> they are weird little blue dudes, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, a real a weird grey blue dude. And then you've obviously got like the the sort of more intelligent life form, shall we say. And then they call them the functionaries that are just like the worker the worker race. So we're back to racial segregation again, which is always good. Yes. Um, but the, the masks were so badly fitting. Mm. yeah very much so very much so uh, there's just everything about the the alien planet and the alien race that's there just screams again like i said 1970s sci-fi this could have fitted into all sorts of different sci-fi shows from that era i think it's real sort of stereotypical of that time yeah it certainly seems to be and, and it's kind of what i wanted from classic who sort of going into this whole thing you know way back when we started on season one I wanted it to be a little bit ropey. I wanted it to be a little bit daft. I wanted it to be a little bit comedic, um, just to see if I could, you know, just still get on board with it. And this, this hit every uh, every bit of that in the first episode. Yeah, I mean, the first episode for me, it's. I mean, like I said, it, it is a, a four parter, but the first episode for me is. I I spent most of it kind of just sat there going, "What the hell is going on." But I suppose that's the purpose of it. It's setting the scene <laughs> because we've got different uh, different scenarios, haven't we? We've got the doctor on a cargo ship with with Joe, who is his companion at this point. But then the cargo ship has a bloody great dinosaur swimming next to it, which, again, makes it seem that's not correct. But then we've also got another scene with these blue, grey alien fellows. And then we've also got a couple of what effectively are circus performers, but like a space circus with a machine and so on. And I spent the, I mean, the good thing about classic who is that the episodes are literally that they're bite size, aren't they? They're between 20 and 25 minutes long. But the first part of it, yeah. I was like, they're going, what the hell is going on? It was very much um, a version of what we've seen before with the, the multi-storyline trope and, and how they're all going to be brought together. Um, it's the two, like you say, it's the two main stories of the, the you know the, the circus con artists essentially, or as, as I like to think of them, the uh, the intergalactic wrestling promoters, um, <laughs> and you know, and them trying to trying to 
promote their wares to these to this alien race and then the doctor and joe and why the hell is there a dinosaur there but then it goes it goes into weird subplot in the uh, on the planet of like political intrigue and all like that it's i almost feel like they're trying to do too much okay yeah yeah okay i can see that because we have the, sorry we have the three main um We'll call them, we'll call them, you know, the Oaklands or something, shall we? The uh, the the three grey blue <laughs> people on the planet. Um, the the leader or or the superior, the higher ranked one is Pletrak, I believe that's how you pronounce it, isn't it, Pletrak? And he has these two almost lieutenants, I suppose, in Kalik and Orem working for him. And it's I think it's Kalik is the one, isn't it, that has the kind of ambitions to change things a little bit and maybe get above his station and potentially take the role of Pletrak, I suppose, Dan. Yeah, because, uh, cause, yeah, Kallik, uh, just a side note on Kallik, he's played by Michael Wisher, who was in 36 episodes of Doctor Who from 1969 to 1975. Uh, and we've seen him as Davros in Genesis of the Daleks. Oh, wow, okay, cool. He was an odd colour yeah, then. Um, but yeah, Kallik, uh, yeah, he was. Uh, Kallik is uh, the, the brother of the, the, the High President, Zorb or whatever they call him, I can't remember now, because uh, the the names are very loosely, very loosely and very lightly used in this. So I found it a bit difficult to keep track of everybody. Yeah, yeah, I only know that because I've got it literally right in front of me. I wouldn't have had a clue who these who these were, otherwise. Yeah, and then you've got you've got um, Vog and, and Schirner, who are the two were, uh, you know, the two carnival workers. But I'll, I'll be honest, I popped huge because. As soon as they're unloading the stuff out of the cargo transport, they've got a mini scope with them. And as people may be aware, I've been playing Doctor Who: Edge of Reality, and one of the uh, one of the things in that game is that you collect stuff to store in a mini scope that you can view on the TARDIS. So amazing that pop from me. Amazing. It's as well with um, uh, the character of Sherna. She is played by Cheryl Hall. Now, I when when we spoke about this episode last week. In my head, I thought she had done loads of different stuff that I was familiar with and so on. Turns out not so much. I was getting confused with somebody else. But it does happen to be <laughs> that she was considered for the role of Joe Grant before it was given to Kate Manning, which is quite interesting. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, that is interesting. I could I could see that because I think she plays a good part here. Yes. Despite you know being saddled with one of the uh, despite being saddled with the uh, let's just whack a load of brightly coloured crazy stuff on people and call them aliens mm. yeah I mean effectively this this scope thing that they have I mean first of all before we get there the, the names Vorg and Zorg and so on again very 70s sci-fi isn't it so that's really kind of Battlestar Galactica or whatever you can imagine having names like that in there but the the it's, scope it's, it's, a off. It, it's it's almost like they just sat there and just go, just do, just do any old wee woo beep boop, and you know what kind of half-assed cheap shit is just calling it wee woo beep boop, really? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what kind of dick had just called it wee woo beep boop? <laughs> yeah, who knows? Eh? Who knows? <laughs> the the scope itself is kind of the way it's explained on the show, or, or the way that I kind of understood it is that it's effectively like well, it's almost like going to an aquarium and walking around looking at the different fish in different tanks and so on. It's kind of like that. There's different zones in this scope, and you can view different beings, different races, living in in their own particular habitat and so on. And they're, you know, uh, Schoener and uh, Vorg are going around trying to sell the possibility for people to come and look at this scope and view the little aliens and, and beings that they keep in there. But it's kind of going a bit wrong, isn't it? Which is how you've ended up with a dinosaur near it. Well, in the 1920s or whenever it was. Well, no, I think that was intentional. I, th- I think they've, they've done that to, to sort of know what's going on and sell the conflict because they've got it all in a loop. Uh, as we find out on when, you know, when we're going to more of the doctor and Joe's story, but then there's all sorts of stuff that creeps in later on about turning up aggression and, and bits and pieces like that. So I think they've done what any good carny will do and they're manufacturing the experience. It's essentially a version of reality TV before the term reality TV was a thing. 
Uh, yeah, okay, that's a good shape, actually. That's a good shape, the reality TV. Because that is kind of what we get now, isn't it, with reality TV, except a lot more unlikable people. Scripted presenters, not scripted. A bit like pro wrestling, actually. Well, yeah, just nowhere near as fun. Um, <laughs> with regards to where the Doctor and Joe first appear, then, we don't twig straight away that it is part of this kind of contained zone inside the scope or the reality TV, as as you brilliantly put it, Dan. We think they are literally in the Indian Ocean in the 1920s on board a cargo ship called the SS Bernice. And I liked this because it goes back to that whole time loop kind of thing that is right up my street, you know? Yeah, it's it's a really clever framing of the um, of the story, particularly this part of the story. Sorry, um, they're aware that things aren't quite right and, and not knowing what's going on, and I, it's just a really, really unique way of of having two so very different stories able to come together in the same environment. I'm a big fan of it. Yeah, definitely, definitely, uh, and also we see um, Harry Sullivan as well on the boat except he's not harry sullivan at this stage he's he's portraying uh, somebody else lieutenant uh, what was his name lieutenant something uh, john andrews i believe right yes okay yeah that was um the guy who went on to play harry sullivan and created the idiot gas or the moron gas that we discuss in new who as well so I, I like it when we see actors who <laughs> go on to do different things in doctor who but they get their roles in like the brigadier he was in <laughs> He was in an episode before becoming the Brigadier and so on. I get a little kick out of that. Yeah, it's like in you who when you see when you see Martha in uh, in the episode where the Jadoon steal Earth. Yes. Uh, so yeah, you see her in that, but she was in she was in Doomsday beforehand. And when you see uh, Gwen, uh, the actress who plays Gwen Cooper in um, in one of the early Eccleston episodes, and then she shows up in Torchwood. Yeah, it always gets a uh, always gets a big pop from me. Even Karen Gillan was in Doctor Who before she became a companion. Oh, okay. What was she in? Uh, do you remember the story with Catherine Tate with the Pyravillians when it was in ancient Rome with the Peter Capaldi? Yes. She was one of the acolytes of the religious ceremonies. So she's all in the makeup. You can't really tell that it's her, but she's in there. She was an extra. Ah, uh, I did not know that. Why? That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, and speaking of links to uh, links to shows, another link back to um, uh, to my Edge of Reality series that Doctor's talking about aiming for three, and in the second part that I just recorded yesterday, which I'm not sure of the recording schedule, so you might have already listened to it or listened to it soon as as you listen to this. Uh, the reference um, you land on Metabellis four, and the reference it been uh, been better than three, but not as good as two, or something like that. Right. <laughs> oh good that's good it, it will have already dropped it would have come out at the same time as our silver nemesis episode a couple of weeks back so yeah people will have oh. already heard it but there we go um the, the characters on the boat then like on, on the cargo ship we have quite a stuffy proper old school uh english british soldier type i suppose by the name of major daly <laughs> His daughter is Claire, yeah. and it's very, I thought it was very stereotypical for those kind of upper class, um, sort of British Empire stuffy kind of you know type characters of that era. It's very much a, a sort of stereotype portrayal of them, isn't it? Yeah, it's very casual racism towards the chef. Um, you know the the. Well, you know, one of the high-ranking officers taking taking the young lady for a walk, and the and the the fellow staying for a drink and a read of his book, and the oh yes, we're bound for the colonies, going to India. What, what, whatever, whatever. <laughs> That's it, spot on. <laughs> um, whilst there, the Doctor and Joe are effectively, well, effectively accused of being stowaways and um, put in a cabin, which is which serves as a bit of a uh, almost like a running joke throughout the sh- throughout the show, because whenever they're caught. They, the major, the the lieutenant on the the officer on the boat, and that sorry, think it's the first time they've seen them because of this time loop situation. 
So Joe almost sarcastically at times goes, yes, I know, back in the cabin. But I, I got a kick out of that. That was quite funny. As it sort of <laughs> ran through the whole thing. But it's Joe herself, whilst they are confined to the cabin, that notices something wrong. There's a clock in the room that has gone back more than a few hours. So it's almost like it's resetting itself, isn't it? Yeah, and it's um, another great example of, of Joe just being a being a very observant, very good companion. Um, I did like as well just just before this, where she's saying to uh, the doctor, saying it's impossible to be here. I was aiming for Metabellis three, blah blah, and she just looks and says, "Do you ever admit that you're wrong?" And yeah. he said, and he just looks and says, "No, because that's impossible. That's impossible too." <laughs> <laughs> it's that time lord arrogance again, isn't it? But she gets a great line in as well when the when the old fellow sort of yawn, uh, yawning as he reads and nodding off. They, uh, they try and sneak off and uh, Joe shows him the newspaper and says it's from 1926 and just says you ought to have an L plate for that police box <laughs> oh man the, 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 the relationship between Joe and the Doctor I really like there are times that Joe comes across uh, I don't know how to word this right being disrespectful but it's not my intent uh, there are times when Joe comes across a little bit ditzy a little bit out of her depth and literally mm. like she is just there to tick a box of being the girl companion who screams at the aliens. But then there are other moments when right. she's, she's got a bit of sass to her. She, she sort of winds the doctor up and, and sort of gets her own back at him. And I think it's a really interesting character because I don't think there's any subtlety in the middle ground. I find Joe, especially in this story, I find Joe to be completely one way or the other. There's no kind of, middle ground with the character does, does that make sense yeah if it, i think it's one of those where they wrote they wrote joe to be what they needed to be in any given in any given scenario if they needed to be out of the depth and a bit dopey the rotor as such if they needed it to be on the ball and and you know essentially on a good day the rotor as such and it's a testament to um uh, to the actress whose name's gone completely out of my head the kate manning that's it yeah no. Yeah. Not bad for a fellow who was asleep an hour ago. Um, <laughs> it's a testament to her that a testament to her that she can she can play both equally well, really. Mm. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um effectively this has kind of set the scene for the ongoing story now. We have Borg and Scherner on on the planet trying to basically get I suppose visas or, or permission to to go in and do their show to earn some money and so on. They're kind of it kind of looks like they're going to be refused entry because this planet's quite strict. Well, the impression I get anyway is that this planet's quite strict with regards to what they allow in and out and so on. And oh, the doctor—it's sorry, it's planet of the jobs worth assholes. Yes. Oh, totally. It absolutely does my tits in this episode. I hate these. I hate these aliens. This time they're just so officious and bureaucratic, and just needlessly complex and pompous. They're just knobheads. Yeah, and the way they constantly refer to themselves as one. So one doesn't agree with what you say. Well, one doesn't agree with what you say. Well, one thinks it's a good idea. It's like I'll have a day off. You know? Yeah. Just, just shut the fuck up. Yeah, exactly. And just you know, call a spade a spade and call a knobhead a knobhead. <laughs> well, yes, and knobheads they are. Uh, effectively, that, that that's the scenario on the planet. Then the uh, the travelling carnival with their scope, I suppose, is not going to be allowed access to the planet. And the Doctor is on this boat in 1926. Um, they have to head back to the TARDIS at the end of episode one, because when they've escaped the cabin on one of the occasions, because it does, they do keep getting put back in the cabin again and again. But when they escape the cabin on one of the occasions, they find this kind of metal floor panel, which is almost like a hatch of some description, but they need a yeah. core extractor from the TARDIS to effectively open it. And the doctor is uh, intrigued by this mysterious hatch of some kind of alien metal. So they head back to the TARDIS to go and retrieve this this bit of kit that would help them um, investigate it further, I suppose. And as they reach the TARDIS, there is a giant bloody hand coming down and grabs and picks the TARDIS up. And I thought that, considering that they're on a boat in the 1920s, to see this huge hand completely out of the blue 
and then the music hits. I thought that was quite. A, it was completely out of left left field. It was, you didn't expect it in the slightest, which made it a brilliant cliffhanger for me, Dan. Yeah, it's definitely a very different way of uh, of doing it, and I I appreciate it. I thought it was I thought it was gold, to be honest. Um, there's there was just a couple of other things that I liked, a couple of little details that um, that I noticed before we just sort of underline episode one. Yeah. Um, the the SS Bernier, which is the ship they were on, um, the doctor says was at one point as famous as the Mary Celeste because it disappeared. And okay. It's essentially been abducted on the day it was supposed to have disappeared, which I thought was again a nice little detail. Mm. Um, you say you want to say about the uh, about the clocks, and <laughs> not to get too political, but uh, towards the end, there's a sort of debate amongst the uh, uh, amongst the the grey aliens saying that they don't understand the concept of entertainment. It, there's nothing serious or political about it, and amusement is prohibited, prohibited as it's purposeless, um, and it, it, it affects productivity of the functionaries. At which point, I just realised, fucking hell, this is what the current government are trying to do to the UK. Right. Yeah. They're just great. They're, they're just great Tories. <laughs> yeah, that's what they are. Great Tories with mean jeans haircut. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fucking sentence I never thought. Nah. Jesus Christ. Normally, normally. Even as I was saying, Big Dinosaur. Big Dinosaur in 1926. Great Tories in space. Giant hand approaching the TARDIS. Great. I'll have some of that. Yeah, all in. And again, I come back to, I suppose, something that we're going to experience in November and beyond when the the specials air and the new series begins in, in in the following year and so on. You need to remember that at this time, you'd have to wait a week to find out what the hell is going on. Which is, at the yeah. moment, to me, with regards to Doctor Who, a real alien concept. Because I'm watching this on ITVX. I can literally watch one episode after the other after the other. I've just finished my watch back of New Who with, with Charlie, my daughter. And we would watch what we wanted when we wanted, because it's all on demand. Going back to having to wait a week and then looking at this and thinking that people would have seen that cliffhanger and have to wait a week. It, it just really it sort of blows my mind a little bit, thinking that's what that's what people had to deal with, you know, because you don't really have any answers as to what's going on whatsoever. It's just a boat, a dinosaur, a giant hand, great auras. And it's like no one knows what, what's, what's happening, but it would have been enough to make people come back seven days later, Dan, wouldn't it? I probably cannot wait to have to wait to find out what happens because I love binge watching stuff but I find that when I binge watch I, I, my recall and my recollection is never as good when I really have to pay attention to a TV show it's six now you know I've watched whole series where I can tell you the, you know I can tell you the main points and the main characters but I couldn't tell you in detail what what had actually gone on like I could in the early days of Doctor Who before the you know before streaming services, I can't wait to get back to that. Mm. See, I I can see the, the the positives for it, and I'm really looking forward to that Saturday night viewing, you know, sort of around seven o'clock ish or whatever, and for the first time ever in my life, being able to sit down with my daughter and watch Doctor Who as it airs and not know what I'm seeing in the same way that she doesn't know, and it being brand new for the pair of us, and so on. So there's a lot of positives yeah. to that, and it becomes, well, I suppose, what they refer to as appointment viewing, doesn't it? I want to sit down at 7 o'clock and watch it, because I know as soon as that finishes, we're all going to be on, you, me, Morty, and various others are going to be messaging back and forth, going, why, what did you think, and all that sort of stuff, you know, as we did with the last specials. However, mm. I'm bloody impatient, and having to wait for the next one's going to drive me batty, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're just going to have to get over it yeah, because it's going to be great. And honestly, and I, I, I know you know this, but it's going to be so good um, watching with Charlie and then having like on and off discussions for a week with her about what do you think is going to happen, who's you know who, what's going to happen here, who who's this, who's that. It's you're going to love it when it comes around. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's going to be interesting as well because she. David Tennant is her doctor, as I said on the show numerous times, but it's her doctor because that's her favourite. It's not her doctor mm. because of the time she watched. Like, for example, Sylvester McCoy is uh, my doctor because he was the doctor when I started watching. Doesn't mean he's my favourite, 
Charlie hasn't actually got her doctor yet because she's not watched anything as it aired. So mm. I, I'm intrigued because effectively uh, the, the new doctor coming in is going to basically be her first real doctor that she's seeing firsthand at what well, tenant obviously in the specials but she's familiar with him already this is gonna be the first doctor that she's witnessing as it airs in the same way i did with sylvester mccoy so it's gonna be interesting to see her reactions to that as well yeah it'd be great it'd be, it'd be great to have um, even just you know you relate it back to us just some uh, some little tidbits from charlie as to what she thinks oh i keep trying to just pop a headset on her and say just talk to me for 10 minutes for the show people want to hear and she's not interested so <laughs> maybe in the future you can't future. force you can't force her man i'll just record it on the slide <laughs> well, that's an invasion of privacy well yeah i suppose i suppose maybe i won't do that um episode two begins with the multicolored vorg uh lifting the tardis out of his scope machine um, but effectively, he puts it back in. He he calls it a bit of bric-a-brac, doesn't he? At one stage, yeah. At that point, you kind of get the uh, you get the feeling that Vov doesn't really know what he's doing. No, he's like he's like an intergalactic doll boy from Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> an intergalactic doll boy wrestling promoter. Yeah, he's got all the confidence and the swagger and he likes to think he's got the gift of the gab and all that sort of stuff. But he doesn't really know what he's on about. He's kind of winging it. Yeah, I've got real Dow Boy vibes from him, you know? I've just remembered mentioning mention wrestling again. In the first episode, Vogue tells the uh, the Ray Tories that he has a micrograph from President Zab himself. And, this, you know, they take it off and scuttle away and try and verify it. And it turns out it was from uh, a wrestler called the Great Zab that they met at an exhibition. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh man. And again, yeah, it's just that. again, it's just the fact that he's trying to explain he's got this past to get him into the, the into the planet and so on. And it's all just real dodgy dealings, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Wheeling dealing and and this this episode to the uh, sorry, I'm just I'm just I'm making myself laugh on my own nose. Uh, just on Vog, the way Vogue's dress, it looks like the uh, the candy man from the Happiness Patrol vomited on him. Um, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the Doctor and Joe are sneaking about again, and sort of the timing the uh, the dinosaurs aren't the uh, the dinosaur attacks, which was brilliant. And while all this is going on, they're. Um, the uh, the great Tories are getting a, an examination on how the miniscope works. Mm. Yeah, with lots of uh, different creatures inside the scope, sort of different exhibits, maybe I suppose you could say. One way of wording it. And yes, um, Cybermen are in there, but the ones that really stand out as was it the the Drashigs they called them, who are really big, sort of deadly carnivorous space worms, aren't they? <laughs> Yeah, the Drashings and the Kanitsa or anything, we call them the most evil and vicious form of life in the universe. Um, but they've got no intelligence center, so they can't control their behavior. Um, all the, and that's where the, the final revealed that all the creatures in there in their own miniaturized environments, um, it, effectively like sort of goldfish in a bowl. Yeah. Like you yeah. said, like an aquarium. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, whilst Vogue is uh, sort of trying to I suppose it's almost like a sales pitch, isn't it? Everything that comes out of his mouth at this point is almost like a sales pitch trying to get the um, the Grey Tories interested in his scope and, I suppose, get him into the planet because it's almost like they're in a port at the moment, isn't it? Almost like they're in some sort of security sort of section to get in, I suppose. And he shows them that there's a, a, a dial that can adjust mood and and so on. And there's one dial he turns which amplifies um, hostility. It makes everyone more angry and hostile to those around them, which we see back on the boat because all of a sudden the lieutenant and the major and so on, they're not all, you know, what oh chap, let's have a drink and talk this through. They're like, right, let's have a scrap, get the guns, and, all, and, and a completely different attitude to the same scenario because we're still on that same time loop. So that it's the same the same passage of time playing itself out, but with different attitudes because this dial has been turned down. Have I explained that properly? Yeah, pretty much. It's it's really interesting take on it, and again, a good chance for the actors to uh, to show the range. But it, it's it's how on the nose it is because it, the dial that he turns is called an agrometer. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> 
literally up in the aggro. Um, but yeah, I liked it. And then we we get a bit of uh, we get a bit of action man doctor from John Pert. We when uh, when John's swearing up to him, and uh, the doctor says, oh, I, I, um, "I took boxing lessons from John L. Sullivan himself." <laughs> well, this guy saying he boxed for his school. Um, I don't know if you're aware of John L. Sullivan, uh, Si. I, I imagine he was um, a historic boxer from, I'm guessing, the late 1800s, maybe. John L. Sullivan was the last ever bare-knuckle heavyweight boxing champion and the first ever gloved boxing heavyweight champion. Ah, OK. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Dr. Sutton took lessons from him yeah, himself. <laughs> <laughs> and the doctor beats the piss out of him. Yeah, and he goes, oh, Queensby rules? Well, of course. Like, it's a silly question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they've literally got the dukes up, haven't they? You know, one one fist heavily extended in front of the other. None of this guarding stuff that you see today. Fists out front, really just, and chins up, just ready to take a punch. Yeah, it, it's ludicrous, but brilliant at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, effectively, the Doctor and Joe, uh, they escape again because the doctor sort of overpowers the the ship's uh, officer and they're chased around the place for a bit but they make it to this hatch and they kind of escape down it to get away and they're then inside the workings of the machine so to speak aren't they yeah but that's not before they get caught because john and one of the bosuns uh, find them and hold them at gunpoint as the as joe's using the magnetic extractor car and then just by chance, Vaughn reduces the agrometer. Yes. And the crew yes. just walk off. They're just like, it's like, oh, pint then. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> and then Joe and the doctor. <laughs> it's great. And it, that'd be like me and you. Just We were doing something serious, but I can't remember what. Should we just go for a beer? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then they're in, they're in the inner workings of the machine, which I thought, again, was a really, really good idea. Um, done to the best of their ability and budget. Yeah, and that's the thing for me. It comes back to what we say on the show so often, Dan, in that it's easy for people to go back and watch some of this stuff and potentially be put off because of how dated some of it can look. I mean, we're talking about television here that first aired in 1973, I think I said, which, you know, that makes it, well, 50 years, doesn't it? And yeah. 50-year-old TV is not long gone to colour. John Pertwee was the first Doctor in colour, and this is his second or third series, I think. So we've not long gone into colour in in the timeline of Doctor Who. And some of the effects are, at the time, groundbreaking, but done on a budget. And looking back, again, we come back to that thing of, it's 50-year-old television. It could be off-put. I know if I sat Charlie down, for example, and I know I keep bringing her up, but it's, it's a, to me it's a good context for, for modern day, because she's only 13. If I was to sit Charlie down to watch some of this era, she would probably lose interest very quickly because of how dated it looks. She's not old enough or maybe mm. mature enough yet to appreciate the story behind it. But I think it's important when we're watching Classic Who to appreciate it for the time it's in and try and grasp the story as opposed to the special effects. Because sometimes with modern TV, and I catch bits and bobs of different films that the wife has on and all this sort of stuff and different TV shows about the supernatural and so on. Sometimes it's almost like there's more razzmatazz and special effects than actual story. And this is the opposite to me. I think we need here to concentrate on the story as opposed to the effects if that makes sense yeah a lot of, a lot of modern television and films can be all flash no substance yeah there you go yeah can be absolutely fine it can be absolutely fine sometimes you just want a daft action movie to occupy your mind for hour and a half two hours you know like what i want to go back to is rambo last blood it came out relatively recently, but it's it's the final Rambo film. You know, the first one came out God knows how long ago. Sly Stallone's come back for one more go. It's about an hour and 15 minutes. Bish, bash, bosh, violence, done. Mm. And it's enjoyable. Yeah. And some days that's what I want. 
some days I'd rather sit down and watch, you know, watch an epic story like Adam. I know, like, I, I want to sit down and watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy or something like that. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, I mean if you want all flash and no substance, I mean, you could always just watch a Young Bucks match. But that's a story, a tale, a conversation for a different day. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't, don't set me off. I, I won't, I won't, I won't. Whilst scurrying around in some of the workings of the, the machine, the Doctor and Joe find another hatch that leads them to another zone. So we're getting the idea now that it is like all these different little sections and, and different zones and like you said, Dan, the different goldfish bowls almost. But then there's an internal workings and you almost, because you never see it properly because obviously it, it wouldn't be viable for that to happen. But mentally, I'm drawing up a picture of almost like everything kind of branching off where the doctor and Joe currently are when they're running around the workings, the different zones kind of branching off in different directions. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's exactly what I did as well, because it makes it that much more tangible. You know, we're actually seeing this now as opposed to being, being told about it. It's I've told it before. It's the principle in, when you're trying to tell any story of, of show, don't tell. And that is always or the vast majority of the time more effective than just telling somebody something's happening. Mm. So when we see them walking around and the doctors saying, oh, look at that, it's, it's an early pul- pulse mechanism based on the principle of cesium decay, vintage stuff, and he's admiring you know, an auxiliary cap- uh, capillary pump. It, it just makes it all feel so much more real you know as much as you can sort of suspend your disbelief with you know with the set wobble because we do get a bit of that which i adore i think yes, and then and and the doctor's comparing it to walking around inside a wristwatch and dropping a line and saying oh it'll be it'll go for miles in our relative size mm. it's just really really fun stuff you mentioned there about the uh, the relative size and so on we do get an example of how that works as well in this episode because the uh, the great Tories are effectively they're not convinced by this machine and they start having concerns that it has i mean they're, they're quite a paranoid race i get the impression because they, they start having these concerns that it's some kind of transmitter sending out messages to their enemies of some sort really sort of you know crazy paranoia to them and they've got effectively one gun as a form of defense they decide to try and destroy the machine, but the, the gun doesn't have the desired effect on the machine, just damaging it a bit. <laughs> and it's... Sorry, sorry, that made me laugh because they set it all up. They went through the, the rigmarole of getting it down there and getting the crew to work it and all of that, only to just go, oh, yeah, it only works on organic matter. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pillocks. Now, if that's not a cla- <laughs> if that's not a classic, if that's not a classic Tory mindset of get the get the workers to do the work, we don't need to know what's going on. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like we've all built, we've all had bosses who have no idea what what happens day to day. They're just good at paperwork. Yeah, 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 totally. Uh, the 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 one of the great Tories. Um, I don't know whether it was. Orem or Calic, whichever one it was, uh, decides to search the machine. I don't think it matters. It, no, it doesn't really. We'll call him Boris. Um, he, he searches the machine and uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he basically finds the TARDIS in the machine and takes it out. But then, it, you know, we're talking about the different uh, you know, size issues and the doctor saying uh, the relative size, it would take a long time to walk the area and so on. The TARDIS then expands up to its normal size in this kind of port setting. So that horrifies everyone around them. They're amazed at what this is. But again, it gives you context as to the different, uh, I suppose, almost almost different dimensional issues, similar to the TARDIS, you know, bigger on the inside and all that. Whereas the, the Doctor and Joe and the TARDIS, and that we've seen examples of them being very tiny now, because the TARDIS has been withdrawn from the machine and grown to full size and the giant hand in comparison to joe and the doctor and so on in the, in the previous episode we're, we are getting an image really painted for us as to how this thing kind of works aren't we we are yeah it, it, it's something that you have to i have to almost ignore because i'm looking at it's going okay i get that the tardis can fit 
you know, it's probably you know, it's probably maybe an inch tall and all of that. So, but that miniscope isn't that big. So mm. it must be, it must, you know, it must, you must reach into the one that you're looking at on screen or something like that. Because otherwise, how does it all work? How does it all fit in? And then I just decided that it was all a variant of Time World technology. So fuck it, it'd be fine. Um, <laughs> the end of this one was, yeah, the end of this one was quite a lot of waffling about and, and political intrigue almost with the, uh, with the great Tories, with all the, with the, um, uh, Boris, Liz, and Rishi. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, <laughs> I couldn't resist that after you called them Boris. Um, yeah, and so the, the sort of the, the big thing at the end is the TARDIS coming up to size, which I thought looked really good for the time. Oh yeah, yeah, it absolutely did. And and then the Doctor and uh, uh, the Doctor and uh, and Joe getting into the uh, the drafting area. Yeah, yeah, a bit of a, you know, a bit unfortunate that that, that hatch happened to be the uh, the one that takes them to where the huge carnivorous worms live. Bit unfortunate, but there we go. Um they are in marshland, aren't they? And and drashigs are all appearing and one of them is effectively there poised ready to dive down and destroy the doctor and Joe. And that's the end of the episode. So again, I think another fantastic 70s-esque cliffhanger done. And that's where the doctor died. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, just leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, episode three begins with the Doctor using the sonic screwdriver. And I liked this because there was talk about marsh gas. And the Doctor uses the sonic screwdriver to ignite the marsh gas to effectively battle the Drashigs away. So th- that was quite a cool little twist, I think, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Um made me worry about if I ever get a sonic screwdriver and uh, I use it too soon after I've been to the toilet, but I'll take it. It was a good laugh. Yeah, you know, just blow the crap out of your bowl because you've... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> literally. Uh, yeah, literally, yeah. <laughs> uh, Borg is able to slow the drashigs down, it seems, with his hand. He's kind of puts his big, big mitt into the machine because um, people are yelling at him because that they want the Doctor and Joe to survive. And it's almost now turned into some kind of weird interactive movie for them, I suppose, isn't it? Because Vorg is willing to just let them die, whereas the others around him were like, no, 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 help them. You've got to try and save them. But he doesn't want to put his hand in because the drashigs, even though they're in this tiny form at this this moment, will still gnaw the crap out of his hand, apparently. Yeah, it's, it's a really odd one, because of all people, you'd think that Vorg would want to protect his investment, because mm. he's going to have to go out and get more specimens if, if, they, if the Doctor and Joe die. And, you know, for the sake of a couple of little bites on his hand, he's not willing to, it's like, for fuck's sake, just get your hand in and stop being a twat. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, the Doctor now has kind of twigged what's going on you know, three episodes in. And uh, <laughs> he explains that they're in a, a mini scope. <laughs> and that's when we find out that it is kind of Time Lord technology, isn't it? Because the Time Lords were, you know, there was a ban issued on these things because the doctor said that, you know, he was, you know, a big part of convincing the Time Lords to ban the use of scopes in, in the first place, wasn't he? I've just found that in the, uh... Uh, in my notes there, yeah, it was it was quite good. Again, Joe sort of pointing out, I thought Time Lords never interfered, and the Doctor made such a nuisance of himself that the, the, the Time Lords had to take action. Brilliant. And you know, this is one of the few examples that missed out the mandatory destruction. Mm. Yes, yes, indeed. It does kind of feel now to me that this kind of escalates quite quickly. This episode, because we basically then have the Drashigs breaking out of their own zone don't they they, they kind of they, they can consume anything and they eat electrics and walls and circuitry and all this sort of stuff and and these crazy space worms now are just on a bit of a rampage down aren't they just smashing their way through everything rampaging crazy space worms that sounds like a movie from the 70s um, <laughs> but yeah it is there is a, there is a bit of um just sort of back and forth there isn't it? it's and there's quite a lot of lengthy sort of debate between the uh, between the great Tories and uh, with you know with Calix um, 
Kallik's ambitions and wanting the drashings uh, on on the planet. And uh, I think it's I think it is Meta, uh, Metabellus, isn't it, that they're on? You know, he wants yes. to unleash them on that. And I've, 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 I've decided to call his plans Metabellexit. Um, <laughs> you know, he's bollocking on about how they were how they were, how they were stronger on their own historically and, and shit like that. So for God's sake. It's, I think I have too much of that bullshit talk in the media, you know, in the media, for me to find it entertaining just now. But um, yeah, this it was it escalated quickly, but it did have patches of, of just meandering crap. Yeah, it was like I, I don't know if they're trying to pace it that way. I felt the action part with the 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 space worms trashing the place moved quite quick but you're right now i think back the the talking kind of it was almost like we we're watching two different shows that have been spliced together potentially yeah that, that's what it really felt like it felt like this episode was a challenge to see how you could get f- sort of point a and point c to meet in the middle of point b but instead of point a and c you had point a and point z <laughs> trying to meet in the middle you know coming from you know one one half of the writing staff wanted you know, space tourists, the other half wanted, um, you know, ship disappearing. How do we make that work? And it's mm. it's a bit gathered. There's, there's a lot to like in the serial as a whole. And, you know, like you say, the action bits are very, very good and very entertaining. There's And a little bit of the, of the political intrigue would have worked. But to facilitate that, they've then had to have a lot of running around on the ship, a, a bit of running around in the in the bowels of the machine the big drastic set piece which is fine but then ultimately going back to where they started and then getting caught in the time loop again and it's just like uh, it's like it's like when a video game messes you about and wastes your time saying you do this in this area you go and you do things like ah but now you've got to go back to where you were like fuck's sake that's right across the map yeah don't want to do that Yeah, totally. Uh, and that is kind of what happens. The, the Doctor and Joe are running through the machine away from the, the, the space worms that are chasing them, and they're smashing the, their crap out of there, and they're eating all the circuitry and all sorts, aren't they? Uh, they realise there's one of these hatches or a vent of some sort at the very bottom of the machine, and they got to go down this, this long kind of um, air shaft, I guess, to get down to where the exit is, <laughs> <laughs> big shaft. <laughs> you, you, you really, you really didn't, you really didn't want to say a long shaft in my presence. I was desperately <laughs> trying to think of something else. <laughs> but so no, when they're going to slide down, my, they need some assistance handling the big shaft. My English literature GCSE failed me. I couldn't think of any other words. Um, <laughs> they basically yeah they do joe and the doctor go sliding down the big shaft and they're trying to reach the bottom (laughs) but to do that they need a rope which is what you said dan they have to go back to the 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 ship to get uh some rope to travel down this shaft and that's when joe is captured again by the ship (laughs) officer who again has forgotten that they've met already and puts them back in the cabin Oh, big ropey shaft. <laughs> uh, whilst this is going uh, on, that's, that's a... we've got drama outside the Sorry, machine as well, haven't we? Yeah, because the uh, the Tories are noticing that the uh, I think is at this point that they're seeing that the panel's been sort of been moved around by the drashings, or is that or is this the bit where they were sabotaging the eradicator? No, this is. Uh, I think it's a bit of both, isn't it? Somebody sabotages the eradicator for reasons i'm not sure what oh political reasons isn't it because they think that they notice that the drashigs are getting out and if yeah they, it's for it's for calyx uh, metabol exit yeah so if 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 the if the the drashigs get out and start wrecking havoc then the person above calyx will be looked at in a in an unfavorable light and rightfully so he's let space worms on his planet and they're destroying everything so fair play so rather than try and stop them doing this with the Eradicator gun, Kallik takes a piece from it, sabotages it, so that there are no defences against these space worms. So his superior looks like a bit of a dick and is effectively removed from power, opening the route for Kallik himself then 
to potentially take that role. I think that's kind of what we're trying to get at, isn't it? It's for Kallik to then blame his brother, the president, on and his, uh, I quote, soft-minded liberal weakness ah, yes. uh, on, on the disaster happening. Um, but while all this is going on, the, again, the action in the miniscope is actually really good because... The Drassids are in the uh, are in the ship. There's all sorts of gunfights going on. Uh, John lights uh, lights some dynamite and throws it into the hole that the Drassid came through. Big explosion, and the machine uh, the miniscope goes into sort of power failure. Mm. And a nice bit of world building thing from sort of from Vogue here, because he's saying that the generators are designed to last forever. Uh, they were made by the Eternal Perpetual Company, which is why they went bankrupt <laughs> because <laughs> they, they never needed fixing. Yeah, I liked that. <laughs> yeah, and when it, yeah, and then he admits that he lost the handbook, and it, it's kind of a sprint to the finish because then the Doctor's got the rope, the ship's under attack. Joe's pointing out, how do you know I'm not a passenger since none of you can remember 10 minutes ago? The doc, And then there's the, it ends with the doctor exiting the machine and collapsing. Mm. Well, he's teeny tiny. Yes. And again, it's very of its time, but I think the effects look very good still. I mean, they've aged quite well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They have. Yeah. It's, um, it's another one where this isn't, so this isn't CGI, it's some sort of layering effect, you know, to make it look, obviously to make it look like he's smaller, it's it's more of a practical effect than anything else, and it's another testament to um, practical effects ageing better than uh, than CGI. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, episode four begins then with the Doctor growing to his normal size, I suppose, and... The Doctor then is very cross with the people there for allowing a scope to be used and that Vorg and Scherner uh, have a scope and he's cross with them because they're more concerned about the cost of stuff than the actual, I suppose, livestock is the, the reference that they make to the, the lives dying isn't a priority to them. It's the cost of replacing them that's a problem, isn't it, Dan? Yeah, it's uh, he has a go at the the great or he has a go at everybody, like you say. And that I did like it when he just very calmly said to uh, to the great or he's kindly stop referring to me as the creature, sir, or I may become exceedingly hostile. Um, we also find out that the, that the doctor's on the wrong planet. Uh, it's it's called Interminer, not Metabellis Three, the blue ah. planet of the Actian Galaxy. Yeah, yeah so we still I forgot that myself. <laughs> no, no, we can't. Um, but it's. Yeah, there's, again, there's a, there's a, quite a lot of talking and, and debating about what they're going to do. And what did amuse me was that Vogue thinks the Doctor's an, uh, a carny chancer like he is. Yes. Yeah. You can understand why you would think that, looking at the Doctor, can't you? Yeah, because I think the, I think he outright says it does, Vogue. So we'll look at the way he's dressed and the way he commands the situation. He's one of us. And he tries to talk to him in, the, you know, in this sort of carny language. And the Doctor doesn't understand, and I'm sat there thinking, so the TARDIS translation matrix hasn't come into, into effect yet. <laughs> yeah, that is true. That did pop in my mind as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, unless it's just a language that he doesn't, un- the TARDIS is unfamiliar with, because it might even be made up, because Vogue's just a big bullshitter, isn't he? Well, yeah, there is all. To be fair, there is always that. Um, but again, this is more. Um, it's just more political intrigue, as Calix, you know, watching the Doctor and and making these assessment and plotting and scheming and and Vogue's watching the Doctor work and and shit like that. And it's it's not. It's not the most thrilling start to an episode. Mm, no, it's not. Considering the, uh, to be fair, we didn't actually comment too much on the cliffhanger did we we had the cliffhanger of the big hand we had the cliffhanger of the the big worm and uh this cliffhanger is little doctor it's not quite the same level is it (laughs) big hand big worm little doctor (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) oh there's fan fiction out there like that i'm sure (laughs) it was it's three good cliffhangers in fairness um you know for all the other problems we've brought up you can't fault the way they've ended mm. yeah yeah fair enough fair enough uh, effectively now we've, we've got the drashigs coming out of the machine and 
they are then returning to their normal size, which is fucking huge, isn't it? Let's be honest. And they haven't got <laughs> they haven't got a gun or any defenses against these things because it's been sabotaged. So just as quickly as it was sabotaged, they decide let's put it back together again. Kind of felt a bit pointless in a way. Yeah, but it's because the doctors and the doctor's got to go back in, hasn't he? Yes, that's right. Uh, we've missed that bit. The doctor's going back into the scope. The uh, um, Vol's got very specific instructions because they uh, need to pull these switches at, at this point, and you know the, the scope's running out of power rapidly and all of that. But yeah, it's um, it all goes to shit very, very quickly. Mm. It does. It does. The doctor bumps back into Joe, though. I mean, she has uh, escaped the um, the cabin on the ship for what is, I think, maybe the forty seventh time in this serial. It seems like she's constantly getting put in that oh, cabin yeah. and getting away. Yeah, and it, it, the lack of the latest time, she still had the keys on her. They've not yes. even noticed the keys were gone. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty, it makes, don't get me wrong. It, it, it works. I, I, I sound like I'm mocking it a bit, but for the sake of the story and the fact that there's this kind of constant time loop or constant resetting of, of, of the scenes and the scenarios, it does work, doesn't it? It does because it resets the minds of those in the minds and activities of those involved, but it doesn't necessarily reset the sort of the physical things that you know the physical things around them. So if they are removed, like they're like a set of keys, then it, it's it's sort of a way out. It's a way to break the loop, as it were. So it's actually it's actually pretty clever. It's just on the face of it a bit comedic. Yes, it, well, especially when you got Joe making jokes about how silly it is herself but i like that because it's not a case of trying to pass it off as being really serious and then we're sat here going that was a bit silly it's almost like they're in on the joke isn't it it's it's one of those it's one of those things where it's almost a a look at the camera and say can you believe this shit without actually the camera and and going that sort of obvious yeah Uh, um, we have a few issues all running at the same time again here, don't we? That that sort of story is all coming together, but there's still separate moments, I guess, because the, the Drashigs are, are out and about now, smashing the crap out of the place, eating stuff, and they and they basically eat Kalik and the, the other one, uh, or Orum, I think it might have been. I don't know. They, they're snacking on the Great Taurus anyway. They're 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 dead and gone. Uh, whilst this is going on. Joe and the doctor um, effectively start to struggle because of the heat in the machine as it's breaking down and going uh, wrong and and so on. Um, But they end up effectively getting rescued by Vorg, don't they? Yeah, Vorg goes badass and gets the Eradicator working and kills the Drashigs. Yes. Which is fucking cool for him. Um, And then Schoener has to remind him you need to do... um, you need to try and help the doctor. And he goes, it's probably too late now. The power's completely gone. I'll pull it anyway. I'll pull the lever anyway, and it all works. Yeah. So the Doctor and Joe are rescued. Because why not? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Why not? The Doctor and Joe are rescued, and the Drashigs are blasted by the Eradicator, and the evil grey Tory guy has been eaten by a massive worm. And that's kind of it, I guess, with regards to the scope and the issues that it's caused. But we have a nice little bit of kind of uh, afters, I guess, because effectively the Doctor and Joe have their TARDIS. They're all sorted. They're going to disappear off to wherever they head to next. But Vorg and his companion, obviously the scope is broke or, or not working as it once was. They're kind of restricted as to how much money they have or credits, as they refer to it as, on this planet. Uh, they need money for transport. So Vorg goes back to being, despite the fact he's had a moment of, of I suppose, uh, a moment of being the hero, shooting the worms and so on, he goes back to the carny, bullshitter, conman aspect and starts doing the old <laughs> shell trick, but gambling with one of the, the grey Taurus to build, basically to, to rob the guy of all his money, because he's a very gullible individual, this guy seems, and earn enough money and credits to, I suppose, continue their travels Dan isn't it yeah pretty much it is it's quite amusing like you say he uh, he goes back to it it's basically the space version of three card monster you know it's like pit find the uh, you know find the card with the heart on it or find the ace of spades whatever and he's conning pletrak into 
into his money, which you know could happen to a nicer person. Um, what I did like is we got a, a wrap up of the uh, the people on the ship as well. The major finishes his book. He, he's, he's there. So it seems to have been a long trip, you know, longer trip than expected. And Claire asks, uh, you know, asks him something, but the but the you know the memory starts to fade, and and it's all all happy and fine. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And the, and the doctor and Joe hop into the TARDIS and off they go for wherever they're heading to next. So, yeah, I mean, there's a bit of a, there's a lot going on, but also at times just too much talking and not enough going on. It was a bit of a mixed bag for me, but overall I, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very, it's, it's a good snapshot. I think of not just doctor who in this era, but, science fiction from this era as well i mean in, in i suppose in summary dan what, what are your thoughts about this this four-parter and because it was the first time you've seen it as well so yeah it was the first time i've seen it and it was my pick as well um mixed bag is about right it was an interest as i said before it was an interesting concept done about as well as 1973 would allow uh, I like the time loop within uh, the episode. It's, I think, well, I think for both of us, it's one of our favourite tropes in sci-fi in general. Um, Another time loop. It even made the, yeah, <laughs> but it even <laughs> made the sort of capture escape, capture capture escape element bearable, as yes. it makes sense in that scenario. It makes narrative sense. Um, just the the Tory aliens just bothered my piss, despite it, you know, despite it giving an insight into the world, it gave an insight that I just. That was just unnecessary. It did, there, were, there were quicker ways to present these aliens as officious and callous and and ultimately assholes. Um, and yeah, it, so I liked it. I'm glad I've watched it. I wouldn't. It wouldn't be my first choice to watch again, but I didn't hate it. Um, it was. It was. It was Mike Sanders in WCW for me. It was above average. Um, so going with my whole numerical thing that I started that I started last episode, uh, I'd give this probably a six. Yeah, that's fair enough, mate. That's fair enough. Kind of middle of the road for me as well. It's not something I'd rush back to watch again. But if it was on, I'd, I'd you know if it happened to pop on UK Gold or something, I wouldn't turn it over. I suppose it's kind of one of those those scenarios, you know. Yeah, you'd watch it. Oh, yeah, I remember the drashings and all of this bit. And, you know, you'd maybe go make a cup of tea or something while the uh, while the grey ones were talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spot on, spot on. So there we go. There is our John Pertwee story for our fourth season of the podcast. Uh, where are we going next week, Dan? So next week we have our first guest on the show. Uh, yes. We have the inimitable Chris Lewis. I'm looking forward to uh, to speaking to Chris. And we're going to Modern Who. We've got David Tennant, and we're going to be looking at Stolen Earth and Journey's End, which are two of well, I was going to say two of my favourite episodes of that era, but I've watched them all so often I can say that about almost all of them. They are two absolute banging episodes. Yes, they are indeed. They are indeed. Um, lots of lots to discuss there. Catherine Tate's role in the show and all sorts. Yeah, so much to cover. Companions galore in that story as well. So yeah, really looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to Chris. And I love the way as well. I know it's blowing smoke up our own asses, but I love the way as well that even though we get four guests on per season, we're still we're still going with the whole no no repeat guests yet it's new faces new opinions and, and new stories from each person about how they discovered doctor who as a fan and i, I love that it, it's the beauty of having four guests per season we haven't run out of friends yet <laughs> yeah my list got wearing very thin don't get me wrong but <laughs> uh before we depart then do you want to let everyone know whereabouts they can find you online and all the other shows you are involved in, please? Yep, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at DanGriffin21. Uh, usually tweeting about wrestling that's a minimum six weeks out of date or movies that are 25 years out of date. If you want to hear more of me talking about stuff, uh, I co-host Unbooking the Territory with UTT Rob, uh, where we look at the first and last of professional wrestling. We're on Twitter at UTT Podcast. 
Uh, our side project, un Unbooking the Tankatory, uh, is also available where we look at the lives and times of legitimately the hardest man that ever lived, Mr. David Tankabber, and his run in WCW. And we have another side project going on at the moment called Unputting the Territory, where we look at the first time a wrestling belt changed hands by a legitimate sporting competition. And we're looking at the Being the Elite Gator Golf Tournament, because Rob knew that I would get ridiculously obsessed with predictions made about mini golf brilliant <laughs> if you want to hear more of me talking about stuff i love that <laughs> How else would you put it? <laughs> yeah, very true, very true. Um, anything I am involved in is carried by the network that carries this show. And that's SJP World Media. Uh, if time travel and sci-fi is your bag, then we have the waiting room there, which is looking at the old late 80s, early 90s cult classic TV show Quantum Leap with our good friend Benny Mack. Benny also brings us a look at modern day wrestling every week with Tyler Peters, as well as the awesome trio from Ohio uh, doing regular scheduled hostilities for us across the pond also looking at modern day wwe and we have plenty of nostalgia when it comes to your wrestling content as well with nitro nights looking at old school wcw chain wrestling as well live on a monday night and the podcast version comes out midweek too just so much going on the murder and mind podcast i think three three or four or basically even five new shows being added in the next few months all covering different topics as well that are not wrestling interestingly enough and none of them involve me so if you're sick of my voice you ain't gonna worry about that but there you go the network that carries this show is where you can find anything i'm involved in and so so much more that's at sjp world media on facebook twitter and all your podcast players platforms and providers but most importantly you can follow this show itself and chuck it a follow a subscribe and all that good stuff on on your podcast players there that's at the doctor who pod that's at the d-r-w-h-o-p-o-d at the doctor who pod looking forward to a bit of new who next week dan my friend is gonna be good oh it's gonna be brilliant do you know what alonzi indeed Indeed. Uh, I'll speak to you next week then, buddy. And to everyone else, as always, thank you for listening. Big Ropey Shaft. How are you doing, sir? Um, laptop makes a noise in my ear. No, you went then. You went, I'm, and then there was complete For silence. Sake. And I got laptop. I'll go again. I'm good, thanks, mate. Apart from the fact I just had to re-record this sentence because as soon as I started talking, my internet decided to go, fuck you, no, you're not. Uh, but what I was going to say is I've reached the age where I kind of unironically enjoy... So I've just been sick. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.